Good morning. Today is Monday, September 12th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. I'm glad that you've tuned in. Whether it be over the air, online at kfuo.org, or the KFUO app, or through your favorite podcasting app. That's right, just search for Thy Strong Word. So settle in, open your hearts and your minds. We are about to begin. Thy Strong Word is underwritten by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. When you get time, do me a favor, go visit them at lhfmissions.org. You might find how they can be a partner for your outreach, or you can support them and all the good work that they do. Now, if you have any questions or comments about today's show, or maybe you just want to say hello, you can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Well, today we are back in the ancient city of Corinth, a metropolis of nearly 300,000 Roman citizens and more than 400,000 slaves. The banking industry thrives here. Many are wealthy. But as in any major city, poverty and crime abound. Christians are here too. The Apostle Paul is deeply concerned about the divisions brewing in the Corinthian congregation. Last time we gathered, we heard him say, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Today we continue reading his first letter, now opening our Bibles to chapter 2. To help us receive Paul's teaching this morning, I'm pleased to welcome the Reverend Larry Bean, pastor of Salem Lutheran Church in Gretna, Louisiana, teacher and chaplain at the Wittenberg Academy, editor at Gottesdienst.org, and also a chaplain in the Civil Air Patrol. Pastor Bean, it sounds like you have a lot of things going on, but thank you for taking the time to be on Thy Strong Word. Well, thank you, Pastor Boo. It's a great honor Uh, to talk with you, of course, about God's Word and to be on Thy Strong Word. I appreciate it. First of all, you know, how is God working through you and through your ministry at your congregation? And then expand that, you know, give us a plug for Gottesdienst and and tell us all the things that are going on in the Civil Air Patrol. I know that our listeners will be interested in hearing about them. Sure. Um, I serve a small congregation in Gretna, Louisiana. It's called Salem Lutheran Church. We've been there since 1871, the same location. Uh, we're just outside of New Orleans. It's a small town, uh, you know, wonderful place to live, very low crime, and everybody knows each other. We have a responsible little government, and, you know, we have the you have your councilman on, on your phone, and you can hit the button and talk to him anytime. Um, it's overwhelmingly Roman Catholic, so there are a lot of challenges for uh, for our Lutheran minority here. But our Roman Catholic neighbors are wonderful. Uh, they're very supportive of our parish. It is a historic part of our city. Um, for instance, uh, a year ago, we had Hurricane Ida. It did major damage to our school buildings. And you know our, our Roman Catholic neighbors really uh, took care of us financially, thousands of dollars and uh you know, so I, I've been here 18 years, so everybody knows me. I, I give a lot of the prayers at community events, so it's a great place to live and serve, and we love having visitors. Sometimes people pop in from all over the country when they go to New Orleans for a vacation or something or a convention, and uh, so we love having uh, having visitors. We're, we're a confessional congregation, very liturgical. We love to teach God's Word. 
Um, we have divine services on Sundays and on Wednesday nights. We have daily matins. Um, sometimes we have special classes on Saturday night. We get you know a lot of people from even from outside of the parish that come and attend. We we work for our local uh, food bank, so it's a great congregation. I'm blessed to be here, um, and uh, my wife serves as the church secretary, and so it's re- it's really it's really awesome and. Um, and, and I also have the time to work with Gottesdienst. I'm the sermons editor. Gottesdienst is a journal dedicated to the Lutheran liturgy and the liturgical life of being a confessional Lutheran. Um, we've been publishing, boy, more than 25 years now. And we also have a blog that you can find at gottesdienst.org. We have a podcast as well. Um, and so uh, I'm honored to work with a great, great team of editors at Gottesdienst. As you mentioned, I'm a Civil Air Patrol chaplain. Uh, Civil Air Patrol is a great, great way to do military chaplaincy. Even if you are you know, too old to join the military or if you're not in good physical shape, those requirements are waived. You, you, don't, you don't have to meet the grooming requirements. Like, so if you're like me and you have a beard, uh, you can wear the uniform of the, uh, of the Air Force Auxiliary and serve. Um, it's, it's an outstanding way to, to serve your country and your community and to serve um, the, the Air Force and to serve cadets. We have a cadet corps of young people from ages of 12 to 20, and we teach them leadership and aerospace education and, and build their character. And we desperately need chaplains, by the way. If you are interested, please email me. I can get you in touch with the people that you need to be in touch with. It's, a, it's such a great honor. And it's, it's, and you don't have to, you know, you're not, you're not uh, subject to orders. You're not, you're never sent out of the country. You never do anything that isn't voluntary. It's a completely voluntary organization, but it is the official Air Force Auxiliary. So, um, and I also work as a local fire chaplain for the volunteer fire company in Gretna. If, if uh, uh, other, if, if guys are looking, pastors are looking for things to do, uh, I know we're busy, but we really owe it to our communities to serve uh, fire chaplaincy is also such a great blessing. Those guys are, they're heroic and they really need spiritual guidance. So I'd encourage uh, men to, men in the ministry to consider prayerfully, consider that kind of work. But I love my work and I love my uh, community and it's a real, uh, a real blessing to be called to serve. Well, now we know why your wife is the secretary. That seems like the only time she might be able to spend any quality time with you, which is at the church. You're so busy. Yeah, she's awesome. And she's a, she's a blessing not only to me, but to our uh, congregation. And she she actually does some side work for Godestine. She's the business manager. So it's kind of a, uh, kind of a family gig that we have. The ministry is really uh, my whole life and, 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 and it's, it's my family's life as well. Well, I'll tell you what, let's dive into God's Word here. We actually are in chapter 2, and there's just a lot of good stuff. But before we begin, would you please open our time together in prayer? Absolutely, I'd be privileged to do so. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to, to reflect on your Holy Word, revealed to us by the Holy Spirit and preached by men like St. Paul in the office of the Holy Ministry. And that word inscribed points us to the word incarnate, our Lord Jesus Christ, and him crucified, by whose blood shed on the cross reconciles us to the Father and to one another, and gives us the promise and the guarantee of everlasting life after the resurrection of the body on the last day. 
We pray that you would bless us as we discuss your word today, O Lord, and that our deliberations and meditations may be a blessing to those hearing it. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to dive right into the text today, and we're going to read it in sections. So I'll be reading the first five verses. The version I use is the English Standard Version. Here we go. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Those in and of themselves are, of course, powerful words from St. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But brother, you know, maybe start us off. Where has Paul been? We're only in the second chapter, but even in that introduction, Paul is laying the groundwork for how he's going to be encouraging, but also admonishing these divisive Christians. But here in this first part of chapter two, he talks about his first visit. Take us through that. Sure. And and I really appreciate, uh, Pastor Boo, your uh, your introduction. That that's it's uh, it's so well done. Um, as you said, Corinth, it's a rich port city, it's a Roman city, lots of pagans living there, idols, lots of idolatry. And so uh, St. Paul had planted the church there at roughly around 50 AD during his uh, second missionary journey. And so um, he writes 1 Corinthians around 55 AD or so. Uh, this is during his third missionary journey, and he's writing to them while he's in Ephesus. He's, a, he's there about a year and a half, and Ephesus is um, it's another uh, similar, very similar Roman city, and he's kind of on his way towards Corinth. He will make his way to visit them. Um, and, and, you know, 1 Corinthians, it's kind of cringy <laughs> to read it, it and, and just... I mean, the Corinthian church is a train wreck that he's writing and he's writing to them. So it's kind of, you know, it's, it's a little bit shocking sometimes to read it. Um, but uh, just to, just a, a quick summary of what St. Paul is addressing in, in this letter. Um, they are filled with divisions and factions. There, there are some people doubting that Paul is it has proper apostolic status. There's a lot of sexual immorality um, because of the culture, a lot of lawsuits. They're a litigious society. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, they have the issue of meat being used in um, pagan rituals uh, because everybody there is a pagan. There's idolatry, even among the Christians. Um, they have the issue of submission of wives to husbands. He has to explain this to them and, and a lack of modesty in worship. There's abuses going on during the Lord's Supper. There's disorder in worship. There's um, dissension in the congregation over spiritual gifts and things like speaking in tongues. There's a general lovelessness. Um, there's even a denial, a lack of understanding about the resurrection of Jesus. And and they even have you know stewardship issues at the end of the letter that he addresses. So it's there's a lot a lot of criticism being levied towards the church in Corinth and. In fact, Paul says in the second letter of Corinthians, which was a few months later, uh, 2 Corinthians in uh, chapter 7, 
verse eight, Paul says that he actually originally regretted writing the letter, which I, I, is, mm. I find is amazing. I mean, it's a yeah. book of the Bible, and here's Paul saying he initially regretted it. Um, but he changed his mind about that because he said his letter, though it was harsh, it caused what he called a godly grief in, uh, in verse nine of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, a godly grief that led to repentance. And so um, the story of, of the two letters to the Corinthians is really one of law and gospel. It really is the power of God that, um, that St. Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 1.18, um, you know, through the preaching of Christ crucified. Even though it's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, um, Paul reiterates that it is the power of of God in, um, in verse, uh, 24. So, um, you know, this is, this is the, the beauty of, of the preaching of the cross. And in fact, I kind of look at chapter two as really a commentary on, uh, first Corinthians one, 18 to 31, or maybe not a commentary, maybe that's the wrong word, but sort of a drilling down and a going into detail about what that means that the cross is the power of God. And we see it in the life of the Corinthian Christians. You know, when we read this first part, chapter two, just the first five verses, he really seems to be, uh, oh, what's the word? He's not exactly puffing himself up. He's being a little negative on himself, but it serves a purpose, which I think, and I'd love to hear how you uh, perceive it, but Paul is basically saying, listen, in this culture, especially the Corinthians who value knowledge and rhetoric and slick talk and slick presentations, and he's pointing to the fact that, hey, that was not me. I didn't come like that. And when I read this, I would think if Paul was out there and somebody was trying to watch his sermons to see if they wanted to call him as a pastor, they might pass him over because if he really did preach in the way that he describes here. So, you know, why is he saying this? Is it just hyperbole uh, or, you know, does it serve a greater purpose? Well, it is really interesting. You know, he, it, in verse one, uh, he says, when, when, I, when I first came to you, and he's referring back to Acts 18, 1 to 17, um, during his prior missionary journey when he was in uh, Corinth, he says, I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming you uh, the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Um, in other words, uh, he's, you know, the Corinthians very much admire philosophy and beautiful rhetoric. And so Paul is kind of downplaying his own, uh, his own um, rhetoric in, in a sense. He, he came to teach them about the cross, not to put on a show of how smart he was or how well he could speak. Um, but it is kind of funny. There's, it seems a little bit like maybe a little bit of a humble brag going on here because um, although Paul does really truly preach the cross, um, he he is extremely eloquent. Um, he is uh, he you know he can speak to all different kinds of groups. He can speak to Jews. He can speak to pagans. He can speak to atheistic philosophers. He knows their culture, their language, their literature, um, and and he and and if you look at the you know in spite of him sort of downplaying lofty speech, you do see beautiful and eloquent speech in 1 Corinthians. I mean, chapter 13 is, is just magnificent, um, holding forth on love. Um, chapter 15, my goodness, about the resurrection. I mean, we how many funerals have you been to that don't cite St. Paul's beauty in uh, 
chapter 15. At chapter 11, I mean, the, this is the first instance of the words of institution being written down for us. So, um, But Paul is pointing out that th- this is really not about him. It's not about his eloquence. It's about the word of the cross, as he said in chapter 1. It really, truly is um, the power of God, not not his skill or his uh, his rhetoric or you know all of that sort of thing. So he's drawing the attention, perhaps away from himself, you know, because it's there. There was a problem with factions in the congregation. Some people are saying, "Hey, I'm a Paul guy. I'm an Apollos guy," you know. And Paul's trying to say, "No, you're not. You're a Jesus guy." You know, you we we are all Christians. We are all cruciform people of the cross and and so I think he's he's kind of setting that up I, I really do think that the 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 um, what I s- cited earlier about the uh, about talking about the cross in chapter one really is kind of a thesis statement for the whole of the letter right I I agree and in verse two of this one he says for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, we know from elsewhere in Paul's letters, Romans, for instance, which we just finished here on Thy Strong Word, that Paul uh, emphasizes the resurrection uh, very much. I mean, it's it's incredibly important to the cross event. So when he says, I, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's speaking of the broader event. He's not just saying, all that matters is Jesus died for your sins. No, obviously, to understand Jesus's death on the cross, you have to understand the greater event. Yeah, and I think that the the church's liturgy kind of helps to teach us this. You know, um, Maundy Thursday or Holy Thursday, we uh, we we remember when our Lord established the Holy Supper, and then Good Friday is His uh, Passion, His uh, Crucifixion, His Death, and His Burial. And it's all, you know, and it's in, the, it's in the Nicene Creed, of course, in that sort of chronology. And then, of course, uh, Easter Vigil, Easter Sunday, we celebrate his glorious resurrection. It is really all one liturgical event in the life of the church, even as it's really one event, wh- what we're talking about here. But you could kind of think of it in a way, um, what is the pinnacle of even that, those you know those three days that that on the third day when he rose, when he was put to death on the cross, when he rose again. Um, the real pinnacle is when Jesus says it is finished. Um, when he's saying it is finished, he doesn't mean like, oh boy, I'm done now. I can punch out and go home. My work's done here. It's really um, it's a it has been brought to completion. Uh, it has been fulfilled. That's really what he's getting at. It's really a military term, uh, mission accomplished. And then, and then right at that moment when he declares victory over sin, death, and the devil, he dies. And it's at that moment that we have our salvation. We have made peace with God. There is full atonement for the sins of the whole world. And then the resurrection comes along, and it is the exclamation point. It is the victory lap. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think when Paul says the cross, it's a very inclusive statement. It, it, it refers to his uh, establishment of the supper. It refers to his passion, his death, his burial, his glorious resurrection, and his appearances to, um, to the uh, apostles and to others during that time of his resurrection. It, it, it is, that is the pinnacle 
and the fulfillment of the incarnation of God coming into flesh. And, uh, and so, no, I think you're absolutely right here. But there is, there is still that preeminence of the cross. We preach Christ crucified, uh, St. Paul said uh, back in chapter 1. Now, I already know the answer to this question, but uh, Brother Pastor, do you have a crucifix on your altar? Yes, we sure do. Um, we have a crucifix on the altar. I, I typically wear a, a pectoral crucifix. And, you know, it's, it's not a law, of course. Um, these are, these are uh, symbols uh, that draw our attention to the cross, but it is within our Lutheran tradition and our ancient Christian tradition to display the symbol of the crucifix. I know one time um, I was standing in line at a restaurant and a lady kind of ac- uh, accosted me about it. She was very offended that I had the crucifix on. And I thought it was really interesting because uh, the offense, it, you know, the offense of the cross is what St. Paul's talking about. He says, this offends people. It is a scandalon. It is a stumbling block to people. Like, why are you wearing that cross? You know, it's a, why do you have the image of Jesus dying? Um, and I think it's it's part of because I think there's a a, a strain of sort of triumphalistic uh, theology of go- glory Christians that would separate the resurrection from the cross, whereas we don't. Um, we preach Christ crucified, the one who has been crucified. That fact doesn't change, even though Jesus was taken from the cross and he was risen. He he is always the one who has been crucified, just like we are always the ones who have been baptized. So I'm a baptized one, even though for me, my baptism was uh, uh, decades ago. Well, I bring it up because of the very reason you're pointing out. There's this misconception out there that crucifixes are somehow not in the Lutheran tradition. And again, as you so aptly pointed out, this is not to make it a law or to say that you're somehow less a Christian if you don't have a crucifix. Really, it's about the gospel. You are free to have this crucifix, which points to, witnesses to, and reminds us of just what Paul is saying here. Yeah, that's the blessing of art, which is, you know, part of, again, part of our um, the, the, the blessing of being created in the flesh. We live in a material world, and ma- many religions say that the material world is evil. The, the pagans that St. Paul was reaching out to to bring into Christianity had that belief that the material world is evil. And in reality, you know, God created everything, and after each day of creation, he said it was good. And then at the pinnacle of creation, uh, at the end of when it was all created, he declared it to be very good. So creation is good. It's corrupted by sin, but, but ma- the material world is good. And, and Jesus himself sanctifies our material world by taking on flesh in the incarnation. And because he does that, we can depict him in art. And, uh, you know, in a, in a lot of religions, um, like in Islam, for instance, you cannot portray uh, Muhammad or, um, or, or to portray um, their, their God in any depiction of art. Um, also, uh, Jews who reject uh, Christianity, who reject Christ, who hold to the, um, the older uh, old covenant, um, they also don't believe in depictions of God, but but we can not only depict uh, Jesus, but most of our churches have stained glass windows. We have you know children's Bibles have beautiful pictures, and it is our Lutheran tradition to have beautiful art surrounding us in our 
uh, our churches. It's it's kind of unfortunate that in our American context, we've imitated uh, some other traditions instead of sticking with our Lutheran tradition. And a lot of our churches are very plain. That is uh, unrecognizable. If you if you go to Europe and you go to very old Lutheran churches, they're just, I mean, the art, the art, the music, it's just incredible. The idea is that we're, um, you know, we're in the presence of God and everything should be excellent. And, and art, you know, points us visually and through our ears, you know, points us to God and to his beauty and to, you know, the imagery of the Holy Scriptures. And so the the crucifix should always be the pinnacle of Christian architecture and Christian art, again, because of what St. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. In just a few minutes that we have left before our break, I want to get into these last few verses. You know, in 2022, we live in the age of the influencer. And usually these are young people online, on social media, probably have no business influencing anybody. But there were some influencers going in the Corinthian congregation. As you mentioned earlier, some people are like, hey, I'm a Paul guy. I'm an Apollos guy. There's even people going, hey, I'm I'm a Christ guy, except without the right understanding. But he says here that I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling. My message and my speech weren't in plausible words of wisdom. And we talked about how he's trying to set himself up as the anti-rhetoric guy. I'm not polished, but I love verse five. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, I don't think we should take this so far as to mean Well, when we preach our sermons or when we read the text, we must do it in a stilted, monotone, boring way so that people can only get anything out of it if God gives it to them. No, we shouldn't be an obstacle to the message. We should engage people. But at the same time, people should not buy into ideas or cling to theories or doctrines just because the guy saying it is uh, uh, slick and good looking. Yeah. Absolutely. And and again, when he says power of God, you can read, you know, that's, that is that uh, is uh, uh, another way of saying the cross. So, it, it, you know, you, you shouldn't look to your pastor's eloquence or ability to speak, you know, uh, uh, whether he has a nice voice or whether he looks good up there. What is he proclaiming? Is he proclaiming the power of God, the uh, or is he proclaiming the wisdom of men? The power of God is the cross, and and again, he, Paul says that your faith might not rest in this, in in the wisdom of men. Our faith itself is a gift. Um, the the technical term is monergism. It means that you know there's only one person acting here, and it's God. Um, we don't. Our faith is not a work that we do. Like some Christians are convinced that their faith is a good work. It's not. It's a gift of God, and it's given through the power of God. It's given through the Word. It's given through the sacrament. It's given through uh, preaching and the Holy Scriptures. So yeah, this is magnificent stuff. Well, this does seem like a good place to take a pause. Dear listener, don't go anywhere. In just a few moments, when we return from our break, Pastor Bean and I will continue our discussion of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll see you on the other side. On America's college campuses, doors are open to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The number of international students studying at American schools has more than quadrupled over the past decade. 
For many of these young men and women, it's their first time living in a free society where they can ask questions about Christianity. You can help answer their questions. Go to lhfmissions.org and partner with the Lutheran Heritage Foundation to translate good Lutheran books into languages these students can read and understand. lhfmissions.org Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend Larry Bean, pastor of Salem Lutheran Church in Gretna, Louisiana. He's also a teacher and chaplain at Wittenberg Academy, one of the editors over at goddessneets.org, and also a chaplain in the Civil Air Patrol, and, you know, a bunch of other things. I can't even remember all the things this guy's doing, but we're so grateful that he's taken time out of his busy schedule to join us today. Now, Pastor, before our break, we were just talking about influencers and we were talking about how there were people that were hanging on the words of these so-called influencers in Corinth. But really what brings a person to faith and what strengthens faith is the power of God. And in Paul's context, really the cross of Christ. Is there anything else we want to cover before we move on to the next section of verses? Just uh, just to reiterate, it's all about the cross. It's all about Christ crucified, and that's what Paul's. You know, this is how he's addressing all these divisions by pulling them to the cross. Excellent. The rest of our chapter really is one section, but we're going to break it up. I'm going to read verses six through ten. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything even the depths of God. Again, we'll stop there. His thought continues, but let's just dig into what we have. Yet among the mature, we do impart some wisdom, but God's wisdom is not the world's wisdom. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's philosophy is not a bad thing. The word wisdom there is, is part of the word philosophy. Sophia means wisdom. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. Um, but philosophy can become a bad thing when it, it supplants or takes the place of the cross. But as, you know, among mature Christians, we can um, address wisdom in a godly way, but there's a contrast here, right? He says, he talks about the, um, uh, the rulers of this age. It's an interesting term, of this age, um, when it's translated into Latin, that's where the word secular comes from. So in, in America, in our culture, we usually think of, you know, there's the religious and the secular, or there's the church and the state. But that's not really what he's getting at. It's um, uh, secular means of this age. And what age are we in? Well, we're in the age of fallen man. So there are rulers of this age, rulers of the fallen world. They can be political rulers. They can be cultural rulers. Like you said, you know, we have this, uh, a lot of influencers and, and, and that's a, that again, that is a great contrast to the cross. And he brings this in, in an interesting way. He says, um, if they truly understood the wisdom of God, um, 
in verse 8, he says, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so, you know, he's critiquing the people of our age who crucified Jesus. He's bringing it again back into the cross. And it's really because the the wisdom of God, you know, the, the power of God is in the cross. They, they completely didn't get that. He In verse 7, he says, it is... Um, Secret, uh, impart a secret, secret and hidden wisdom of God, and um, I'm not sure "secret" is necessarily the best translation. It's really the word is literally mystery. So you know the, this this idea of the cross as the power of God that has to be revealed in the scriptures by the word of God. That's not apparent to us in our in our fleshly logical philosophical way you wouldn't look at a man dying on a cross and say there's god there's god doing the holiest work that could ever be done but the, you know through the revelation of scripture we uh, we are the mystery is revealed to us and that is the wisdom of god that transcends the wisdom of this age This is a common theme. Even Peter speaks of this in the book of Acts. He says that, you know, that they didn't understand this, that the rulers of the age weren't aware. Uh, I just looked it up, Acts 3, 17. Peter says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And Paul here is preaching that same thing. There's that consistency among the apostles, consistency in the scriptures. And so there's something to this idea, yeah, secret and hidden, right? No, I, I'm with you. The The word here is mysterion, I believe. Yeah. Oh, that's the, yeah, that's the part where he says it is uh, revealed. Uh, uh, it's uh, based on the word apocalypse, you know, a revelation. Oh. Yes, hidden is mysterion. Yeah, yeah, hidden and, yeah, excellent. and, and revealed. Yeah, it, the, the words kind of go uh, together. So he says here that we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, but as you so rightly pointed out, nobody out there, the rulers of this age, could not have just discerned this on their own without God's help. Yeah, that's why it's a stumbling block, uh, a scandal to the Jews, and it's folly, meaning this is just stupid, this is foolishness, to the Gentile. I mean, that's the whole world. You know, you, everybody's either a Jew or a Gentile on the planet. And in the, in the minds of the world, of our secular world that we live in, um, the, the cross is just insanity. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And we get that through divine revelation. Uh, we don't get that through our reason. Isaiah is being quoted here when he says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Pastor, what's he talking about? Well, again, I think when he says, No eye has seen, no ear heard, this brings up that idea that it is a mystery. It's, um, it's, it's not like, uh, you know, we can learn certain things about God by looking at nature, but the fact that, that God would take flesh and die in our place and rise again on the third day, this is not something that we can figure out by science or observation or experimentation or or anything of the sort. It is a mystery that has to be revealed. And I think that's what he's really getting at. And, um, it, and one thing that's interesting about this passage is it's, it's a paraphrase of what we read in Isaiah 64, but it's really, it, it actually comes apparently, according to one of the early church fathers, 
um, whose name we don't even really know, <laughs> he says that came from this book called The Apocalypse of Elijah, which is uh, not canonical scripture, but we don't have a copy of it. It just, it vanished from history. In fact, we, we have like a, a, a couple of fragments of it, but this particular passage is not part of it. But once again, this this verse is part of the Holy Spirit's revelation to us because the Spirit preserved this beautiful passage, uh, even though it was not quoted from canonical scripture, the Holy Spirit incorporated it into canonical scripture in the in the writing of St. Paul. And it, it, it is kind of, maybe it's maybe the way to think of it, it might be a commentary on Isaiah with, you know, he quotes a little bit of it, but then extrapolates from there. And notice this is what God has prepared for those who love him, right? So this is his, God has prepared this uh, for his church, and uh, he has prepared for those who, who confess him, because again, the cross is the power of God. Verse 10, he says these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. This idea that you're putting forth here is certainly not foreign to the rest of Scripture either, that God has to be the one who reveals these mysteries to us. Matthew 16, Jesus is talking to Simon, and he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven, that Jesus is the Christ. In Galatians, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Ephesians, the same way, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. And John is quoting Jesus, who says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said for you. So we see here that God is using means to deliver his revelation to the people. The way I talk about it to parishioners is that, you know, in nature, we know that there is a God. You can't explore the sciences of this world, explore our universe, and not come away unless you're willfully ignorant. You cannot come away not believing there's some higher power. This is why every culture that's ever existed, so far as I'm, I know, has believed in a god or gods or spirits or something. They look to something to have been behind the magnificent creation that we see. You know, the attributes of God are evident in the things that are made, the Bible says. But you don't know who that God is unless he reveals that to you. And he reveals that through the prophets, the apostles, and lastly through Jesus Christ but this is the foundation for Paul's argument. Um, plenty more to talk about, but let me go ahead and get the rest of the verses under our belt so that we have them all on the table. Starting, yeah, starting with verse 11 then. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. 
or who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Wow, have the mind of Christ. Yeah, we definitely want to get there, but let's start back up here. Let's continue this thought about how the Spirit is the one who reveals these things to us. Yeah, this is where he he's, 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 he's revealing how the revelation happens in a way here, and it is through the Holy Spirit. And he makes an analogy um, with, you know, our spirit. Um, I think it was C.S. Lewis that kind of compared us to, we're like a hybrid creation. You know, the angels are pure spirit, and the animals are essentially, you know, they have a breath in them, but they are not uh, created in the image of God. So they're, you know, they're, uh, they're, an- they're animals, they're li- biological, but they're not spiritual in the same way that the angels are. And he- but mankind, we have attributes of both. And so um, that, that part of us that is sort of fleshly, especially in the fallen flesh, or the animal nature of us, that, uh, you know, the biological, natural part of us, we're not hardwired to understand these things. But that other part of us, that truly spiritual part of us, that, that um, you know, the, especially uh, when we've been redeemed by Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in us and our spirits are in line with the Holy Spirit. That part of us is allows us to, to get it, to, to receive the revelation, to be able to make the good confession. So that's kind of what he's going at when he speaks about spiritual. And I, and I think we have to be careful with the language because people mean something different today when, you know, when, especially when they say I'm uh, spiritual, but not religious, or there's a, you know, there's a kind of a, a early Christian heresy called Gnosticism, where again, the flesh was bad and the spirit was good. And we're not saying that because we are both, it's a both and just like Jesus is both God and man. We are both body and spirit, and we are, you know, we have, we are both material, but we are also, there's a part of us that transcends the material, and it's that part of us that transcends the material that, uh, that God enables us to grasp hold of the revelation. Um, you know, I suppose in an, an, an animal, you know, like your pets understand they have, they have faith in a way that you're going to feed them because they know every time, you know, they, they hear the sound of the can opening or whatever, they come running. Um, but it's instinctual. It's animal. Uh, that's very different than, those, than, than the human ability to say, oh, God has revealed himself to me. I, I can get it that Jesus died on the cross for me and gives me eternal life. An, an animal, a, a, you know, your pets don't have a concept of life and death and resurrection and all of that kind of thing. That's something that we've been uh, blessed with as, uh, as humanity. He does make a distinction here as you talk about spirit versus flesh and this Gnostic idea that flesh, bad, spirit, good. But the the text here, he says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. The, 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 the words here are the same in the original language too, but there is a difference between the spirit of the world and then the capital letter spirit as the editors interpret it who is from God. So we're talking about a, and correct me again, if you have a different view of it, but we're talking about a spirit of the world, kind of like a zeitgeist, the way people see themselves, the opinions, the culture, and then the spirit, that is the third person of the Godhead, God himself. These are two different concepts. No, I think you nailed it. I, you know, uh, that word zeitgeist is, you hear the word geist, 
that's ghost in English. You know, that's the, like uh, in German, the Heilige Geist is the, you know, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. And, and, and this, this, that, that parallelism is a very real thing. We can either be followers of the spirit of the age, the, of the, of the sec, of the secula, you know, of the spirit of the age, or we can follow the Holy Spirit who leads us to Scripture, who leads us to Jesus, who leads us to eternal life. It's sort of like um, in the old writing, the Didache, it talks about there's sort of two paths you can take. One leads to life and one leads to death. You can either be informed by the spirit of the age, or you can be informed by the Holy Spirit who reveals the cross to us. Uh, verse 14 speaks so deeply to me because this is the verse that when I became a Lutheran helped me understand how giving your heart to Jesus is not what people think it is. Verse 14, once again, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If you're at the point where you're ready to make a decision for Christ, then you don't have to because that ability to do that, to articulate that faith that you have is already yours, given to you by God. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, I also come from that tradition as well. What you're saying is so true because again, uh, in verse 14, uh, the natural person, um, it's, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a tough thing to translate. Um, it's, uh, but, but what we're getting at here is this is the post-fall the fallen spirit of the of the of a of a person, and it, in the the Latin translation of the Bible, it's really an interesting uh, translation. It's animalis homo, the the animal person. You know, the, the anima means means sometimes it's translated spirit, but this again, this is the kind of spirit that animals have, meaning the breath breath of life in them. So the the animal part of the human, um, the unregenerate, the one who is not born again, can't understand it. So it's a catch-22, right? If you are, uh, to use the, the terminology, if you are unsaved, if you are not a saved person, you can't, be, you can't be saved unless God does it because you don't have the capacity to get it. So how are you going to give your heart to Jesus when you're too ignorant to do it? You know, or when you're like Lazarus, you're dead. You know, you can't just get up and walk out of your grave unless you're Jesus. But if you're Lazarus in the tomb, you need Jesus to come and say, Lazarus, come out. You need the Holy Spirit to come to you, to reveal this to you, and to, uh, and, and to, to give you that ability to confess Jesus. And so, again, I think that is a, a, a really good way to understand that, that, that kind of order of salvation based on me having intellectual knowledge you know, like getting information from consumer reports about whether I should buy product A or product B, and then I make my decision. That's not how salvation works. It's a mysterion. It is a mystery. It is, it is God working in our lives who saves us. And that's a humbling thing because we don't get to take credit for it. Oh my goodness, this is just like right out of Ephesians 2. This is by grace, uh, through faith, not of works, so that we have nothing to boast in. Um, and it's and it 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 is a very it is a pass it's passive on our part but active on God's part. That term I used earlier, monergism. Mono meaning one, and and it has the word of energy. It is God's energy that gives us the new life, that puts the Spirit in us, that raises us from the dead, and He does this through holy baptism. 
So there are no volunteers in the Christian religion. That's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you become he, a volunteer after God volunteers you, you know, and then, right. you, know, and right. then you can, you, you know, you, you can, once you are regenerate, as our confessions talk about, you can cooperate in your sanctification, um, certainly not as an equal partner with the Holy Spirit, but your will does play a part in that. But in terms of your... Um, Coming to faith, your will is incapable because it's flawed. It takes God to come in and to fix it before you can confess Jesus. Now, as it applies to the Corinthian church, he began back in chapter 1, verse 18, when he says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So when he's talking to the Corinthian Christians and he says the natural person doesn't accept the things of the spirit of God, or as the Vulgate says, that animal person, I love that, uh, because they're a folly to him, he's not able to understand him. He's clearly trying to tell them something about their faith versus the so-called spirit of the age, all the people around them, the people that maybe they're even jealous of. You know, they look out there and there's all these influential pagans there. Some of them are very wealthy. Some of them are very powerful. And yet in the church, in the congregation, you know, Paul has already told them, not many of you were wise, not many of you were wealthy. So, so he's trying to tell them something about their faith that sets them apart from these others. Uh, do you see it that way? Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, the word folly, the English word folly, you know, maybe we don't think of it enough, but it's, it's related to the word fool. I mean, it's just an, a, an English way of taking um, the, the idea of a person who is a fool and describing that characteristic or what, you know, what makes him a fool. It is that he has this attribute of foolishness. But in English, we don't say, you know, foolishness describing, uh, a, a foolishness is usually an action, but to describe the concept, we say folly. So when the world looks at us as Christians, they see uh, they 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 see that we are they they think we're fools. They think this whole idea of the cross is is utter foolishness. Like um, we're just stupid and, and uneducated, and we are looked at it that way. You know, especially in a sophisticated city, an urbane place like Corinth, or maybe in a university setting. A lot of our young people or students they may be intimidated because their professors think Christians are stupid. Uh, they don't think we have a mind, and it's that's not it. It's that we are revealed something that transcends the human mind, but we do worship God in our minds. We do confess Christ with our minds, but it's only after our minds have been regenerated. Our spirits are um, brought uh, to, to the ability to, to understand these things by the Holy Spirit. And so uh, that, that word folly, it's, it's not an accident that St. Paul is using that word. He's reiterating, reminding us of what he said about the cross earlier. It is folly. Uh, the world, the worldview, the secular worldview looks upon us as fools. And we, and we have to be willing to, to bear that shame and, and really bear it as, you know, even the shame of the cross that Jesus suffered uh, was that sort of same thing. It's the shame. We bear the shame of the cross, but it really is the glory of the cross because God transforms the cross from a symbol of death to a symbol of life. Um, it cr transforms the cross from a symbol of, you know, being condemned to that of being saved and made it made eternal. We just have a few minutes left in the show. 
just the last few verses, anything else you want to talk about that? Uh, but otherwise, I want you to, and I know you'll do great at this, give us a, a gospel message. Leave us with a conclusion, but also a gospel that's not only for the benefit of our hearers, but maybe something that they can share with their neighbors. Yeah, sure. This is uh, fantastic because uh, verse 16 is perfect for that. Um, Paul asks rhetorically, who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And this is kind of hearkening to the word logos in Greek, which means uh, it, it means the word, but it also kind of connotes the mind. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, he is the word made flesh. He is the mind of Christ. And again, that's to contradict that idea that we are a bunch of morons, that we don't think um, that's that's not the case at all. But again, what this is all about, this whole letter to the Corinthians, they were they had a lot of ignorance, a lot of bad knowledge, a lot of you know really reprehensible behavior. Uh, a lot of it was committed in ignorance, uh, but but it's really just sin. And the way to overcome that, it's it's not moralism, it's not be better. You know, the world tells us to be better, be good. It's really about the cross. That's the power of God. The power of God is in the cross. And so we have to constantly remember, you know, uh, even when our churches, uh, maybe sometimes our churches are kind of a train wreck. And the reason is, is because we're train wrecks. We are, all of us, Christians and non-Christians alike. You know, the people that call us uh, fools, um, in Paul's day, we, they said the Christians were fools because they didn't worship uh, the pagan gods. Uh, today, they call us fools because we, were, we believe in the sky daddy and the flying spaghetti monster and the zombie Jesus and all that. They have all these ridicules for us, but when you really start to engage them, you find out they're not very smart. They don't know their history. They don't understand where the Bible came from. Uh, they terribly misquote it. And, you know, we need to have, in, in reality, they're the ones that are displaying folly. And, and the only way to overcome that is with the folly of the cross. So that goes for Christians. It goes for non-Christians. We have to constantly point people back to the cross. The historical reality that in 30 AD, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and that he is truly God in the flesh. And there's a point here. It's the defeat of Satan, the defeat of sin, the defeat of, uh, of death itself, which gives us everlasting life. And we have to be confident that, you know, when we when we speak of this, it's it's not an intellectual thing. Some people are just going to laugh and they'll never believe. But other people, you know, when you proclaim the gospel, it is the word of God and it is the power of God. And it's God's power, not your power. So, you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to ma have a master's degree. You don't have to be eloquent. Um, you simply have to just, if you can read what's in the scripture and paraphrase it and say, look, Jesus died for your sins. There's power in that. Um, that is the monergism. That's how God works. And and believe me, that's how people come to faith. Uh, so it, I think there's great hope here. And, and as we read, as you go from 1 Corinthians and you go into 2 Corinthians, you see the result of, of Paul's preaching, the result of the Holy Spirit coming. And it's a positive thing. It is a good thing. And they, they do con, uh, confess their sins. They do receive absolution. And they are more fruitful for uh, God's kingdom. But you got to get the cross right first. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Larry Bean, pastor of Salem Lutheran Church in Gretna, Louisiana, teacher and chaplain at Wittenberg Academy, editor at Gottesdienst, also a chaplain in the Civil Air Patrol and a chaplain at his local fire department. One of the hardest working pastors I know, Pastor Bean, thank you for being on the show. 
Well, thank you, Pastor Boo. This has been great fun. And like I said, it's a great honor uh, to be on Thy Strong Word with you. I'm also grateful to you, dear Christian, for listening to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. Tune in tomorrow as we continue in 1 Corinthians with chapter 3. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in Thy Strong Word.